Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. I'm Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. So today uh, we're going to be discussing a couple of topics, uh, one of which is a jawbone which will reshape history, a legend of accidental time travel or potential ghost encounter, a question about what is the goal of humanity, two saints, Angela Marici and Thomas Aquinas, and then we're going to conclude with a devotional about God and what it means for our families. So thank you for joining us today. We are in Cord Purgatory, which is sort of the unfortunate name, yet somehow accurate name, which has been given to our studio, not by ourselves, but those who have walked in and seen the massive cords which go everywhere, and they realize anybody who would subject themselves to be in these cords must be paying penance for something. But moving beyond the issue of paying penance, let's see what we can actually learn about history, because really the main theme we're going to be talking about today is we may not know as much about the world as we, we thought. We like to fantasize about different things in the world, but we have to figure out how we're going to interact with the, the different things in life. We're going to have to figure out how to create moral structures within our family. And let's begin this conversation today by talking about a jawbone. So going around the web is this news that there's been a, a find in an Israeli cave, which is causing us to rethink how many people have understood the world. Um, so this is really important because this jawbone, well, let me say our current understanding of this jawbone causes us to reshape our understanding of the world that existed just a few moments ago. So our source for this ar uh, article or for our discussion is an article by Amanda Borchel Dan from the Times of Israel. And it is an important breakthrough because it is causing us to rethink history. So we've kind of, you know, have a timeline of where and when things have happened. And because of this jawbone, we're shifting that around a little bit. So just a few moments ago, it was accepted, an accepted understanding that humans did not leave Africa until 90 uh, to 120,000 years ago. This find, the jawbone, now has us moving this timeline back a little bit, or actually a lot of it, about 100,000 to maybe 200,000 years. Many who study ancient humans also did not think that modern humans had yet developed at the time of this fossil. And... Included with this and us moving this timeline around a little bit, we're also finding discoveries around this jawbone that may also show a human um, using more things than we thought. Yeah, this is really changing what we thought about humans in the ancient world, or at least what sort of the accepted um, premise was within a lot of communities, especially how we've traditionally been writing textbooks about human history. Well, in this cave, there was also evidence of the food and lifestyle that this person would have lived. They ate meat from large animals, which means they had capability of big game hunting. There's even evidence of flint tools. Oftentimes flint is a lot softer than other materials. It's certainly nowhere as hard as a diamond. It's not as easy to preserve things like flint tools. But they found things like axes, thin knives, and even projectiles. In other words, something which is rather advanced for people to be making. Interestingly, they also found some organic material used as seats around the common areas. So basically they found some, some early and primitive furniture. So all of our sort of fantastic and imaginary scenes we may create of what cavemen look like sitting around on their, their cavemen furniture, well, actually, there may be a little bit of evidence to go along with that. They were using things to, to have some early renditions of furniture as a, a community, and that's really interesting, really cool. So the time of this jawbone, when it was found, was 2002. So we've had it for about a decade and a half, and they've spent about a decade and a half trying to, to date this this jawbone and learn as much about it as possible, and they didn't just want to come out and have all this stuff without it being much substantiated. Now we are able to substantiate some some evidence about this and some thoughts on this. 
And we now know that Homo sapiens were in the picture a lot earlier than than previously thought. We know that they were also along. There was a larger overlap with other ancient humans and other animals. A lot of times people didn't think there was much overlap between the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Now we realize that this is actually not the case. There was probably a large block of time overlapping there. Um, so it's just a really interesting find. It's something really neat that this is happening. And again, it causes us to reshape how we, we understand things. Basically, this fossil is certainly reshaping our perspective of time based on what we would have anticipated. Yeah, it's a lot older. Um, so continuing on, on the theme of rearranging timelines, uh, let's discuss a paranormal story involving two ladies who, according to the legend, they slipped back in time. Or perhaps, depending on how you interpret the story, maybe they just ran into a bunch of ghosts. <laughs> so many people really enjoy stories about the paranormal, and in the church there are really two distinct ways of thinking about this. Yeah, it seems like very few people are actually kind of on the fence about how to understand the paranormal or stories about it. Um, you're either kind of in one or two categories. And one of that is which is uh, there are people who are really into these stories, uh, science fiction, fantasy, uh, even horror, where something quite fantastical is happening. You know, examples are like Stranger Things or Harry Potter, or even Stephen King's um, book and then movie It. The other side of the coin is to consider all those things, the fiction and the fantasy, and maybe even the more realistic stories that people actually believe in, to be a blasphemy. And it's a contamination to the soul just to be exposed to it. Yeah, a lot of people, they're either really into these fantasy stories or they're like, look, this is contagious, it's blasphemy, paranormal stuff belongs to God, do not contaminate your mind with this. And then other people in the church are like, hey, it's kind of fun. It's a fiction story. Let's let's have fun with it. So you get those two uh, mentalities. I don't think we're going to rule which one is more appropriate, um, fictional stories or fictional stories, but there is some truth to contaminating one's mind. So there's some push and pull there. Just be balanced in, in what you're, you're viewing. Um, either way, both mentalities give notoriety to the paranormal, the things which are a little bit weird and unusual. So let's talk a bit about what is known as the, the Moberly-Jordan incident. So this happened in 1901. Um, and we've got a photo of them. The photos are actually swapped. Uh, Eleanor Jordan is the one on the left, and Charlotte Ann Moberly is the one on the right. But both of these were professional, educated British women in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They took a trip to Versailles, France in 1901, and this is where the interesting tale takes place. They took a guidebook with them, but they lost it looking for the Petit Trianon. Um, I do not do French, um, but we'll have a conversation about French another day. And they were looking for this place, and they went down an alley, and that's where things take an interesting turn there. So this is really interesting, and of course, our source for this story is VintageNews.com and an article by Bobin Dochevsky. So as they take this alley, things begin to change. Moberly saw a woman on a nearby window that was shaking a white cloth, or Jourdain observed an old and abandoned farmhouse with an old plow standing in front of it. Besides these visual changes... Moberly and Jordan both reported that they suddenly felt a great oppression and dreariness come over them. They approached two men that looked like palace gardeners and asked them for directions. The men told them to go straight. In another report, Moberly changed her statement and described them as very dignified officials, dressed in long grayish-green coats with small three-cornered hats. Further down the alley, Jordan saw the old cottage and a woman with a girl standing in front of the door. But there was something unnatural about them. 
They looked like they were somehow artificial, like wax sculptures. Moberly said that she didn't see the cottage, but she felt the difference in the air. Everything suddenly looked unnatural. This is a quote from Moberly. Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. Another strange character appeared sitting near a garden kiosk. He was wearing a cloak and a large shady hat. He was seen by both Moberly and Jordan. Moberly described him as most repulsive, its expression odious. His complexion was dark and rough. Jordan also thought that the man looked dreadful. A quote from her saying, The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was evil and yet unseeing. And though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him. End quote. Finally, they reached the Petit Trianon, where the last strange figure appeared. A lady was sitting on the grass in front of a chateau and sketching. Moberly gave a detailed description of the woman as wearing a light summer dress, white hair, white hat, and long hair. When Moberly first saw her, she thought that she was a tourist, but her appearance was somehow out of time. She later claimed that the woman she saw was Mary Antoinette, while Jordan denied seeing her. At the end of this bizarre experience, Moberly and Jordan entered the manor and joined the other real guest. All right, so we are not saying the story is true or false. We're not going to rule on that. But many people are, are fascinated with this either way. Some people say this is a time slip. They were going down an alley and somehow they went back to pre-revolutionary, um, the pre-revolutionary era in France. Other people said they, they walked into an area and just a bunch of ghosts manifested. There's a lot of different takes on this story. Um, one of the um, hypothesis which has been presented to sort of debunk what happened is there was a, a I forget his name, Montesquieu is the, the man's name. I can't remember exactly what his role was, but there was a man who lived in the area who had a lot of um, basically costume parties, and they're saying it's possible he was having a costume party, and they walked into the costume party, and that's what happened. Um, we don't know. Um, nobody is able to give in a, a definitive resolution to this. But nonetheless, this is a very captivating story. Because it basically amounts to people walking about their day. They're doing something relatively normal. They're going to visit somewhere. And they walk into another reality. And that is something which really captivates us. Both in the, the first story we were talking about earlier today with the jawbone, it causes us to rethink how we, we understand time. And then yet, at the same time, as a species, we're captivated with stories where we ourselves could have time shifted around us. So there's something to really have. There's, some, there's a conversation to be had about how we, we interact with time, and what we've used the end goal of humanity. And we're going to be back with that in just a second. But while we're, we're taking this break, do enjoy this, this sort of um, fun music that we have. And we'll be back with you here in just a moment. come back together. Um, as we move into this next segment, I want you to, to think about this question. How do we view the end of time? What is the goal for humanity? What direction is our species going? These are some important questions, and people really enjoy the, the Moberly-Jordan incident, which we just discussed, because it challenges how we understand time. So does the, the jawbone that was found in the Israeli cave. It causes us to sit back and say, maybe we don't know as much about the world as we thought we did, 
But there's a big difference between the two stories, but the jawbone is something where we, we, we rewrite history. It's something very literal. We can rationalize with it, but it doesn't change too much about how the physics of our own life may, li may play out. But the morbidly Jordan incident does something which can really intrigue us all because it's this idea that we can be walking around one day and we can walk into another reality. Perhaps we can step into a, a utopia in another universe or perhaps we could step into another dystopia somewhere. Um, this idea that we can just walk around and go into another reality, whether it be one that's utopian or dystopian, is fascinating to us that we can somehow play the sort of cosmic lottery that one day things will just instantly change. And so this takes us kind of to our next question is what is the goal of humanity so uh, i mean as like dylan said do we kind of just walk around and, and appear in this utopia or is there something else can we get to there but basically how do we view time where are we going not just individually um but a, a, as a world many people particularly secular people who do not live a life centered around a personal god found through christ jesus Humanity began somewhere off in the cosmos and is evolving towards a utopia. And there may even be some that say we're devolving into a dystopia, but basically we're going in a very certain direction. Many Christians also believe that there is a utopia somewhere out there, somewhere beyond the cosmos. Um, and some view heaven and hell as this ultimate utopia and dystopia, this place, time, somewhere out there. And how we view this end goal, or even the end times, often shapes how we behave. So here's the conversation I want us to have. I want us to, to look at ourselves, and I want us to spend a few moments and ask the question, what is the goal of humanity? And in the church, where does the reign of Jesus Christ begin? Instead of us spending a lot of time discussing the logistics and the details of a afterlife in heaven or hell, or even the reality of things like time slips and ghosts, I want us to have a conversation about the meat of when we believe Jesus' reign to begin. When does the kingdom of God begin? Is it something far off like a distant utopia? Or is it something that is here and now that we need to be working on? Do we need to be working on building the kingdom here and now? This really is something which shapes how people believe, whether you're a secular person or you're somebody who's um, a, a one who disciplines their daily life in a Christian walk. We need to ask the question, where does Jesus' kingdom begin? So the novel question for us today is when does Jesus' kingdom begin? Anthony, just so we can all have clarity about this conversation, what is our, our question for today? When does Jesus' reign begin? All right, very good. So <laughs> when does the reign of Jesus begin? So in Christianity, there are several different thoughts, and some believe that the reign of Jesus is off somewhere in the future, that we now currently are in a dystopia, so in a world that's heading towards destruction or it's currently being destroyed. And we are waiting for Jesus to come and set everything right. So everything's broken. Christ one day, sometime off in the future, is going to heal everything. There is some good about this thought because it gives us a future goal. Um, but the problem then is it neglects personal responsibility of making the kingdom real here and now because we're just waiting, we're sitting back, anticipating Christ will do everything. And of course, the other extreme of this is that Instead of looking towards a future goal of the kingdom of God, there are people who say it began 2,000 years ago. Um, and we, we're currently tasked with building the kingdom. And, and yes, I realize people may get angers with this. We are doing sort of the diet version of this conversation. It is a eschatological conversation, eschatology. Um, but we're look, going to look at these two angles. There's the goal that says Jesus' reign is in the future and the, 
mentality that Jesus reigns begins in the past, sort of we're making a few distinctions here. The understanding that Jesus' reign begins 2,000 years ago is great because it does inspire personal responsibility. It says, build the kingdom here and now. However, when you just put the beginning of the kingdom in the past, you don't sort of balance these two, you can, and what often happens, is people do away with the, the sense of personal urgency. In other words, there's not so much motivation if the kingdom began in the past, it's sort of a thing of the past, people aren't very inspired to say, we've got to get out and do something about this here. And now, which sort of moves away from the whole purpose of the personal responsibility in the here and now. <laughs> well, and the ancient church definitely had motivation. And there are a couple of reasons behind it. Some is, is obviously their lives were going to be cut short because of the persecution that was, was, that was happening. Brutal deaths were happening. And so they wanted to explain this, this message of this Jesus who was coming and proclaiming that the kingdom was coming. Um, before they met these violent deaths. And also, they, they some of them even took very literally when Jesus says, I'm coming back soon, they thought soon meant within their lifetime. And then that's why we get some really interesting texts in our New Testament scriptures about um, where Paul talks about not wanting to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. It's because now they're saying, okay, Jesus isn't coming as soon as we thought. We're still pretty urgent. We're still anticipating, but this is not happening exactly on the timetable we were wanting. And so, but they still had this motivation to go out and tell everyone they could, Christ, the kingdom was coming. Yeah, and back to the conversation about the Mobley Jordan incident with the time slip or possible ghost. One of the reasons we really like this story, whether you be secular or not, people like this because they like the idea of stepping into another reality. It's a bit of a lottery. The question for us always is, do we just sit around and wait for the cosmic lottery to, to come and bring us another reality, or do we go about looking for it? Um, especially in the kingdom of God, the question is, are we just waiting for, for Christ to come back, or are we going to be active in building the kingdom here and now? The ancient church certainly had motivation. Again, there's real motivation when martyrdom is going around. Um, for some reason, martyrdom seems to, to stimulate a lot of church growth and a lot of motivation to build the kingdom. But even for secular people, they, they fantasize about utopia and government policy. And I would like to take a moment to point out building the kingdom and living in utopia may not actually be the same thing. There's a world and there's sin in the world. We can still be building the kingdom even if we're not living in some fantasy utopia. That is a really important thing to, to emphasize. A lot of times people aren't happy unless they're in utopia. And because they're not in utopia, they just say, well, we're just going to sit and wait for that to happen. I think we can take a better route for that. In the church, many of our songs talk about longing for this utopian heaven. We see this a lot. But I really think as the church, we can do more than that. Instead of just waiting for something in the future, um, and again, not to, to discredit the kingdom of God in the future, but just to remind us that here and now, we must be active in building the kingdom. So kind of going back to our original question, when did the kingdom begin? I was running the passage found in Luke 4, and kind of to bring us up into where we are in the story of Luke, is Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been um, drawn by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. He's being tempted, and now he's back in um, around people. He goes into a synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to preach from it, and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to blind, and to set to liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we hear in this text, I think, the beginning of the kingdom, that Something is happening that has never happened before. Christ has come in all the power and the fullness of God to proclaim that the world is being redeemed. But as much as we're saying that the kingdom is starting at that moment in that time, 
We also hear that Jesus is reading an Old Testament passage from Isaiah, and we're reminded that God is redeeming the world, that though Christ is definitely the paramount example of God's love, God has been redeeming the world since the beginning. And so as we hear this, maybe I can make this statement. Even God did not wait for one day someday to redeem God's people. Um, and maybe we shouldn't either. I think that's a great point to make. Um, and I agree with this notion that Christ's reign begins with his ministry here on earth. Sure, the kingdom is, is something to, to aspire for in the future, but Christ's reign and the kingdom begins when Jesus' ministry on earth really begins. The kingdom of God is an ancient thing. And even before Jesus comes, God is still working and building the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus' reign in particular comes when his ministry begins. And the reason why we have this conversation is the ultimate question comes to, do we look for salvation? Do we look for the kingdom in external measures, such as waiting something in the cosmos will just bring it to us one day, or even governmental policy? There are a lot of people who say we can bring Christendom through governmental policy. Or do we look somewhere else to build the kingdom? Do we look to inter internal measures saying we're going to build personal development within ourselves and with the people around us? We're going to have a good moral architecture and the people around us. So, segueing into our next topic, let's take a look at some of the saints of the day. Again, this is from franciscanmedia.org. Um, we're going to be looking at St. Uh, Angela Merici and Thomas Aquinas because these were people who for them they understood that the reign of Jesus began in Jesus's earthly ministry and that it was continuing on to them today. And their solution, again, it wasn't to look for some external thing, wait on the cosmic lottery, but it was instead to say, we're going to start building something meaningful here and now. So let's take a look at these and we'll start with St. Angela Marici. So here's the story of St. Angela. She has a double distinction of founding the first teaching congregation of women in the church in what is now called a Secular Institute of Religious Women. And that may seem kind of contradictory to say Secular Institute of Religious, but by secular it just means something out of the normal practices of the church. So this wasn't like catechism or something like that, but it, it still definitely had to do with Christ and the church. As a young woman, uh, Angela became a member of the Third Order of St. Francis and lived a life of great austerity, wishing, like St. Francis, to, know, to own nothing, not even a bed. Early in life, she was appalled at the ignorance among poor children whose parents who could not or would not teach them the elements of religion. Angela's charming manner and good looks complemented her natural qualities of leadership. Others joined her in giving regular instructions to the little girls of their neighborhood. She was invited to live with a family in Brescia, where she had been told in a vision that she would one day found a religious community. Her work continued and became well-known. She became the center of a group of people with similar ideals. She eagerly took the opportunity for, the trip, for a trip to the Holy Land. When they had gotten as far as Crete, she was struck with blindness. Her friends wanted to return home, but she insisted on going through with the pilgrimage and visited the sacred shrines with as much devotion and as enthusiasm as if she had her sight. On the way back, while praying before a crucifix, her sight was restored at the same place where it had been lost. At age 57, she organized a group of 12 girls to help her in cate... I cannot say that word. Basically, education, educational work for the church. Four years later, the group had increased to 28. She formed them into the company of St. Ursula, the patroness of medieval universities and venerated as a leader of women for the purpose of re-Christianizing families, family life through solid Christian education and the 
education of future wives and mothers. The members continued to live at home, had no special habit, and took no formal vows, though the early rule prescribed the practice of virginity, poverty, and obedience. The idea of a teaching congregation of women was new and took time to develop. The community thus existed as a secular institute until some years after Angela's death. Angela was currently building the kingdom of God. And this is really the legacy that she left behind. That's the heart of it, that she was reaching out to the children with these Christian disciplines. And it was her personal involvement that got this started, which, you know, for me personally, growing up, um, if it wasn't for disciples of the church coming in and reaching into my life as a child, you know, um, they really changed a whole lot about me and my life. So, Yeah, and it's all about personal involvement. Well, let's move right along to Thomas Aquinas, because again, this, this really goes back to if we build the kingdom here, now what does it look like? So you may have heard of Thomas Aquinas before. Um, I know in Nashville you see a lot of things named after um, Aquinas, but by universal consent, Thomas Aquinas is the preeminent spokesman of the Catholic tradition of reason and divine revelation. He is one of the great teachers in the medieval church, honored with the titles of doctor of the church and angelic doctor. At five, he was given to the Benedictine monastery in Monte Cassino, and his parents' hopes were that he would choose the, that way of life and eventually become abbot. In 1239, he was sent to Naples to complete his studies, and it was there he first attracted to Aristotle's philosophy. By 1243, Thomas abandoned his family's plans for him and joined the Dominicans, much to his mother's dismay. On her order, Thomas was captured by his brother and kept home for over a year. So there's a bit of an interesting thing there. Um, however, in stark contrast to what we were talking about with the Turpins earlier, um, Thomas's situation was, was less corrupted, though he was kept at home. Um, he did eventually get free, and he goes on to Paris and then to Cologne, where he finished his studies with Albert the Great. He held two professorships at Paris, lived with the court of Pope Urban IV, and directed the Dominican schools at Rome and Viterbo. Combated adversaries of the Medicants as well as the Avarist, and argued with some of the Franciscans about Aristotelism, and now, or excuse me, Aristotelianism. And the greatest contribution to the church are his writings, and this is something which is quite well known. He has a lot of really good writings which are out there about unity, harmony, and continuing in faith and reason. One of his big contributions is oriented around reason and rationality. Again, he was somebody who was very much in favor of Aristotle, very familiar with the Aristotelian works. He was one of the people who really brought reason and new ways of thinking to the church, and this is really important. One might expect Thomas, as a man of the gospel, to be an ardent defender of revealed truth. But he was broad enough, deep enough, to see the whole natural order of the coming from God the Creator, or excuse me, as coming from God the Creator, and to see reason as a divine gift to be highly cherished. In Summa Theologiae, his last and unfortunately uncompleted work deals with the whole of Catholic theology. He stopped work on it after celebrating Mass on December 6, 1273. When he asked why he stopped writing, he replied, I cannot go on. All that I have written seems to me like so much straw compared to what I have seen and what has been revealed to me. And he died on March 7, 1274. So basically, one of the things we can take away from Aquinas is that his contribution was in reason and rationality, saying that reason itself is a divine gift from God. And that's something which we really need to take into account. Thomas Aquinas produced quality content to inspire others to think critically. Instead of using sophistry and emotions to stop thinking, he inspired thinking. So, 
To take away from these two and to build back to our earlier conversation, when does the kingdom begin? It begins now. How do we we build the kingdom? Not through external factors. A lot of people, they say, well, we want to build utopia, which means we got to have certain politicians in office. We have to do all of these governmental policies. A lot of times people want to build utopia externally. And even the church does this sometimes. But we don't, that's not how we're called to build the kingdom. Two great examples from history on how we build the kingdom is through us taking ourselves and producing quality content for the world. Sometimes we're like St. Angela who says, I'm going to take children. Again, she was appalled at the ignorance of poor children, quite literally what she was upset with. Her solution to it, I'm going to go out and teach children. I'm going to teach them Christian virtues. I'm going to teach them all the things they need to succeed in life. That was her solution. And for Aquinas, it was rationality is a gift from God. Instead of me using emotions and, and all the arguments we hear in our day and age to stop thinking, he said, I want to inspire thinking because thinking itself is a gift from God. So we're going to take another break and then we'll back here in a moment. And please enjoy this, this sweet track. So now we're going to go into our devotional section. So the big question is, um, what does God want in our family life? So this is a really important question in light of all the topics we've discussed today. Uh, There is always a need for strong personal theology. But we also should look to making sure that our, our families have a strong moral aim. There should be a good family structure with a strong moral aim. We need to build strong families, which means strong nuclear families. And our culture doesn't do a lot to encourage serious appreciation for marriage and serious appreciation for parenthood. We need to be building strong marriages, strong parenting. And let's get into this today by reading a bit out of Matthew and Luke. So let's start with the Matthew text. And these are from the time around the nativity when Jesus is born. So let's begin with Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just and unwilling, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All right, so one of the things we can take away from this is God wants Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary. He wants these two to be married. And that's something which is really important for us to realize. Um, Just keep that in mind, and let's slip over to the Luke text now. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting that this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus. And behold, you sorry, it repeated. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So what does the kingdom of God want in our family life? We've talked a little bit about having the active task of building the, the architecture of morality in the world around us, building the kingdom. But even in our own family life, God wants us to be building morality. We need to be teaching our, our children. We need to be looking at even people who aren't children in our family, looking around and seeing what we can do to build morality. Um, this begins with having a strong moral compass ourselves. In the, the last segment, we looked at the saints of Angela Marici, or Marici and also um, Thomas Aquinas. These were people who were inspired, inspired to build the kingdom by, by teaching others, appreciating rationality, saying this is a gift from God. We're going to do something meaningful with it. The same thing needs to happen in our lives. We need to look around, and when we see people aren't educated enough, we need to look to educate people. Again, this isn't making emotional arguments to try to convince people, but doing things which actually teach people and give them the tools to have well-disciplined and well-structured lives, to have order in their lives, to be able to do productive things, and to still have the creativity to imagine new things and the, the rationality and reason to put things together. We in our own lives need to always be building moral architecture, and we need to be looking at our families, the family members around us, and asking the question, what can we do to improve their walk with Christ, what can we do to enhance them? What can we do to build moral architecture together as a family? And just to add a quick note to that, it may seem like this is sounding like this is a conversation only to parents, but it's really not. It is for each and every one of us, whatever our family structure looks like, um, regardless if we're married, uh, single, have children, or have nieces, nephews, cousins, whatever. It, the kingdom of God calls us to help others to to educate and to instill these structures that enable us to live a righteous life to live a life that is right related to others within ourselves to all of creation especially to god and so this is a calling for all of us again regardless of what our family structure looks like regardless of what our past family structure looks like regardless of what we hope our future family structure will look like wherever we may be with whatever people we have around us we are called to be instruments of discipline and discipleship. And on that, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. We really appreciate you for viewing with us. Um, we appreciate your viewership. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash kingdom of the Logos. You can find us on YouTube. Do a search for Kingdom of the Logos. And you can also find us on SoundCloud, the podcast. The podcast, again, is free. You should be able to download it on, pod, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and CastBox. And if you would like to help us out, please leave us a review. Please comment on the, the video. Please comment on the podcast. That helps us out a lot. And please share our content if you really want to help us out. If you really enjoyed what you're hearing, um, grab the link to, to what you're listening to. Send it to your friends. Send it to your family. We'll appreciate that very much. That can that can help us out more than anything out right now. We're, again, we're in the early stages of this. We're hoping to get some new technology. We've got some new sound system equipment. We just haven't sorted it all out yet, but we're getting there. And to wrap everything up, Anthony, give us a cheap platitude. You either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And that something is kind of interesting, especially <laughs> in the, the context of martyrs who, who really did die um, lives where they, they had the choice to either be urgent in spreading the gospel or, or sort of wait and let things sort of fall to the wayside. <laughs> uh, but on that note, I hope you enjoyed this program and have a blessed day.